Our second reading is from the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 31, verses 7 through 14. For thus says the Lord, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob, and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country, and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, the pregnant woman and she who is in labor. Together a great company, they shall return here. With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water, in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, He who scattered Israel will gather him, and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob, and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord. We have a chance to uh, hear this morning from Caleb Burr. Caleb is a friend of mine that I met not too long ago through the Falls Church. The Falls Church um, was our sending church, our mother church. Three years ago when we started, we were planted, as they say, out of the Falls Church. Caleb is currently working there um, as a Timothy, Associate Timothy, which was the program I was in um, that ended up planting a church. He's also in seminary. Um, and so he's, finishing, he's taking classes in seminary. He's working at the Falls Church. Um, and this is an opportunity for us to hear from somebody else and for Caleb to be able to, uh, to use the gift of preaching and proclaiming God's word. So before he preaches, let me pray for him and join with me if you would as well. God, I thank you for the chance to hear from your word. We believe that the Bible is something more than just a book, that in it you have life and truth for us. And I pray that you would speak through your servant Caleb this morning giving us the life and the truth that we need. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, Johnny. I appreciate that. As Johnny said, my name is, excuse me, Caleb Burr, and I am from the Falls Church Anglican. Typically during this time, I'm teaching four- and five-year-olds at my church, the Little Lions class. So if I bring out the felt board and felt board Jesus with the little sheep, please bear with me because this is one of the ways that I communicate. But I'm really grateful to be here. It's a unique opportunity to stand in front of wise and thoughtful people and share the way the Lord is working in my life and in the ways that I feel that he wants to work in the lives of other people through the text. It's a profound experience. And again, very grateful to be here. So this week, we're going to be talking about an idea of home. So right now, we've kind of made it through the main home seasons. We've gone through Thanksgiving. We've just passed through Christmas. And now New Year's is up. And what we can do now and what I think about is we can breathe that sigh of relief. (sighs) It's over. We can get back to our normal lives. Because when people ask me, what is it like when you're at home? I say, well, home is home. And I think we kind of understand what we mean when we say home is home. It's complex. 
It's hard, it's challenging, there's joys, there's sorrows. And so it's a massive and deep issue that I want to tackle today. But I'm also sympathetic to the fact that there are some of you who may not have had a good experience at home this year. You might have experienced pain and suffering. You might have lost a loved one during the season or in the past. And this is hard, and it makes us wonder, what is home? Why does it matter? What does it look like? What is true home? And so that makes me wonder and begin to unpack home. And so you all are thoughtful, and so I wanted to do the hard work of thinking through what is home? What does our society say home is? So I looked up research, research articles on the Atlantic, on travel blogs, and home is a really hard idea to unpack. Whereas I was researching, I thought, oh, I'm going to understand what it means to be home. But ironically, I feel like I have less of an understanding of what it is after reading it. Because there's a lot of ways we envision home. We think of it as ways in which we can be outside. So people will say, when I'm in nature, I'm outside and I feel at home. But it's interesting in the fact that you can be in different environments outside, different woods, and still feel home. There's some of you may have traveled before. Has anyone traveled here out of the country? So we got some, some people where we feel like we're home even though we're not at home. So there's times when you go to Europe and you say, I feel at home there even though I've only been there for a week. What is that? What is that understanding of home? Similarly, that's the same thing that happens when we think about a physical house. We, 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 the home we live in right now can be our house that we think of as home even though we've not lived there our whole life. So we could have just moved there as our family transitioned into a new job or we got a new raise and so we're able to afford that home we wanted and we're able to shift all of our understandings from that one central location of home to the new home. What's going on there? And the great poets of our society have tried to encapsulate these in the pithy little statements we put on pillows or the little blocks that we put above our doors as we walk in. And so I wanted to throw up some of these. Home is where the heart is. Aww. We have, there's no place like home. Thank you, Dorothy. Home isn't a place, it's a, feel, a feeling. Fill a house with love and it becomes a home. And so we're starting to unpack this understanding of home, and I feel like this is relevant because I've heard from Johnny that you guys have done a series on what is place. What is place in the role of this church in Vienna, and how does that interact with home? And so I think this is a relevant question, even in the fact that it's Vienna here. Why do people move to Vienna? Reason being is that they're looking for a home. It's a way that's outside of D.C., but has the small-town feel to be able to culture a family, nurture your children, settle down and out of the hustle and bustle of society. And so Vienna is understood in our paradigm of home. And so my question for you in thinking through this is, what is home for you? Is it a place? Is it a feeling? Is it people? Is it both? Is it all of the above, two or one? Home is a confusing idea. And so what I'm glad about, that we can put the pressure on the text. The text that we read, Jeremiah 31, 7 to 14, begins to serve as a spotlight to shine upon and give an understanding of what home is. It answers some of our questions. And so I'm assuming that a lot of you have heard many sermons in your lifetime. In me, when I listen to sermons, what I always find really helpful is a roadmap, kind of a trajectory to know where we're going, what I'm going to be talking about, just so that we can mentally put it in a framework to understand. So this time, the way I plan to answer some questions of 
what is home and how do the Israelites get there? Also, what do we do on this journey home? And then what does it look like and mean to be home? So one more time, I'm going to ask, answer the questions of how do we get home and how do we understand the Israelites' journey home? What do we do and what does Israel do on their journey home? And what does it look like and mean to be home? Now, as I've described the roadmap, you should have heard the parallels between Israelites and us and how I'm trying to juxtapose them together and hold them and say Israel and us. The reason being is that Jeremiah 31 is what we put under the genre of prophetic literature. I'm going to say it one more time, prophetic literature. And what prophetic literature does is it speaks to the current situation of the people that the text is written to. So this would be the Israelites in the time of Jeremiah. However, it doesn't just speak to them, it transcends them and incorporates larger people into that story. So it will incorporate us into this reading as well because we are brought up into the story of God as he brings us home. So that's what I'm going to be explaining of kind of here when I talk the relation between Israel and us because we interact in similar ways that Israel does. Um, And I also want to provide a little context for this passage. Because I'm in seminary right now, and they always talk about context is king. And what that means is the context of the passage is shaped by what's before it and what's after it. So I'm going to throw a word up right now that I think will illustrate this. What is that word? Or is it red? The context depends on the way we view the word. We can say, I like to read books or on my drive today, I read the signs. So the, the, the word has a number of meanings to it, and our context informs and our, understand, our understanding of what comes from that text. So just to give you a little context of what's going on, you can take that slide down. What's going on in the book of Jeremiah is the people of Israel are bad. Classic. This is what they always do. They were rebelling against the Lord, and now they're under a bad king named Manasseh. Jeremiah the prophet is attempting to win back the people into a faithful relationship with the Lord. And what that means is he wants them to stop worshiping idols. He wants them to trust the Lord and actually view God as their God. That's his hope. And we begin in this predictive prophecy where Jeremiah predicts two things are going to happen. One is that there is going to be exile. And for those of you who do not know what exile is, that's being taken from the home of Jerusalem, where they were from, into captivity and being ruled by another nation. In this case, and in this passage, it's by Assyria. So Assyria is promised to, exile, is promised to capture these people and take them away. But, but as, all good strip, as all good stories at times have happy endings, so does this one as well. In this story, we have a promise of a rest, restored Israel... There's going to be a return back to Jerusalem, back to the home that they desire and long for. And so honing in specifically on this passage, we are having a passage that predicts this return home. And it kind of juxtaposes with the idea of an, a new exodus, which was found, as you got, hopefully if you know, in the Old Testament with Israel being taken out of Egypt. This kind of has similar parallels to that old exodus functioning almost as a new exodus returning home. And this return home is to a place called Zion. 
And for those of you who don't know what Zion is, it's a, it's a synonym for the word Jerusalem. And now Jerusalem would have had special connotations to the people of Israel. Jerusalem rec- symbolized perfection of life, of, of home, of restoration, where God was their king, where the people were, all had places to live and fields to till. And it was the preferred picture of the reality upon which they wanted to live their lives. And so we have this understanding of this is what they're going home for. So now that we've set that up, I want to pose a question of how does Israel get home and how do we get home in light of being in a fallen world where we're in captivity to brokenness, where Israel is in captivity to Assyria? What what do they do? How do they get out of this? Because Assyria is a big nation. It's almost like if the United States captured a smaller nation, how do you beat the United States? There's military power, there's might, there's economics. They all have so much authority that there's no way they can leave. But the text highlights how. As we, as we pull up a text here, one of the things that I want to highlight for you is pronouns. Pronouns, in this sense, are symbolizing the subject, the one who is doing the action. And so in looking at some of these verses, verse 8, Behold, I will bring them back from the north country. I will lead them back. I will make them walk. I am a father to Israel. He who scattered Israel will gather him. And so what we're seeing in this text is the fact that it is the Lord himself who bears the brunt of the work on this return journey home. That is the power that allows Israel to leave captivity and return home. It's not the power that they bring. Rather, it's the fact that it is the Lord himself, the Savior, the guide, the ruler, the shepherd, who brings his people home. In focusing in, it's the people who will be brought home are unique in the fact that they're from all people. And this stands as a contrast to the way we view our world right now. So a lot of you out here are hard, hard-working people. Some of you are taking five AP classes. Some of you are working 60-hour work weeks, pulling in nights on the weekends. In, in our framework and understanding of how do we get things accomplished tends to be, let's pull up our bootstraps and work harder. So I have a buddy, Paul Nelson, in the audience over here, and what he does, he's trained to be a pilot. And Paul Nelson, when he trains to be a pilot, puts the effort in to practice being a pilot. There's no one else who can do it for him. He himself has to do it. And this begins to shape an understanding that even our youth feel. So they feel like to get into to colleges like Harvard or Yale, they have to be taking all the extracurriculars at their school. They have to found three of them, and they have to solve world hunger and create world peace on the weekends. <laughs> There's this pressure that we feel that we ourselves have to do the work to, to get the result that we require. And I'm not making a commentary on that per se, but I'm using that to, again, juxtapose this idea that it is the Lord himself who does it. Highlighting those pronouns again, it's the I, it's the he, the Lord is the one who does this. And it's different from the way our culture works, again, different because when we go to the next slide, we'll see other verses that are highlighted. Uh, Go back one. Uh, I'll just read it out for you. So in verse 8, it says, Even the blind and the lame, the pregnant and she who is in labor will be brought back. Say that one more time. Even the blind and the lame, the pregnant and she who is in labor will be brought back. And what this is showing is the Lord is doing this for all people. 
When you guys are on a journey, how many of you want the blind, the lame, the pregnant, and the woman who's in labor to be on your journey? That's not a journey I want to be on because we're not going to get there anytime soon. But the reason that that's in the text is it's showing even the people that you wouldn't think would be able to make the journey are able to return home. The Lord in his power does that. The reason we're able to get home is that he makes the journey easier for us. The nation of Israel, if we understand a little bit of uh, the geography of it, in the north there's big mountains, in the east there's deserts, and so this is kind of treacherous land. But the Lord in, in his wisdom and through Jeremiah in, writing, in producing this passage highlights the fact that the Lord will make it easier through a certain number of ways, which I've highlighted as well in this text. I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water. Um, for I am the father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. There's a sense in which, um, also in verse 9, it says, In a straight path, they will not stumble. Verse 9, in a straight path, they will not stumble. And what that means is even though they're in the mountains, they are not going to stumble because the Lord himself will be there. He will be their guide. He will be the one who helps them on this journey. Similarly, it says in verse 11 that God has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. Those should be highlighted on the text somewhere. If, if they aren't, that's okay. All right, we're just going to roll with it. So, so verse 11, 9 and 11, and he makes it easier because he makes the path straight. So even though there would have been mountains, it would have produced this idea of, okay, I know this journey is going to be hard, Lord, but you're going to be there with me because of the fact that you have made this path straight. Again, highlighting how the Lord will work. And he does this tenderly because that is the God we serve. One who knows our needs so well and so intimately. We see this again. If we go back to that other slide, (laughs) so we keep jumping, it says, I will make them walk by brooks, of water. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn, and I will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flocks. And what we're highlighting there, in, in the journey and in the Middle East, water is not in abundance. So to have an illustration of by brooks of water, this isn't a small pond, this is a gushing river, a brook of flowing water. And so what that's showing, saying is that the Lord will provide in abundance everything that they need on this journey. They will not lack anything. The reason being is that for I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. This fatherly understanding, a biblical father, was one who took care of his children, who protected, who provided, who cared. And granted, that's not the way at times our world works now, but imagine with me this understanding of a father who cares and knows and loves the needs of his children. And this is an idea that's made much more apparent in the New Testament with Jesus, where he talks about his father often. But this is actually pretty rare in the Old Testament. The word father is not used that often. And so that would have been a unique identification for God that they would have resonated with. And he will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. So he will keep his people like a sheep, like a shepherd tends his flock. And a shepherd always knows the needs of his sheep. He knows the idiosyncrasies, he knows the tendencies, and he knows how to shepherd them based upon their needs. So we've kind of set this up. So we have this understanding that God is bringing them home. So my question is, what then is our role? Do we just sit back and say, Lord, you do it all? What, What do we do? And again, the text shows us. We show forth our praise and excitement and acknowledge what the Lord is doing in our lives. 
and the knowledge what it means that we're being brought back home. So, and some of the verses should be up there. It's verse 7. We shall raise shouts for the chief of nations. Proclaim, give praise. Verse 10. Declare in the coastlands far away. Verse 12. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord. And so what's happening right now is that they are praising and acknowledging that the Lord himself is the one who does this. When we praise God, it verbalizes an understanding that we ourselves are not God. We can't do everything on our own. So when we praise, we acknowledge God, thank you for X. I declare that you have done Y. And again, the focus is on the Lord. So what we're doing is we're, we're, we're putting a spotlight on God's work. And when we do that, it shows our need for God. I don't know about you, but I have a paycheck. I have auto insurance. I have a home I'm in. I have a family that loves me. And so I, at times, check myself and I say, where do I need the Lord? Because I can kind of go on autopilot. Besides some emotional stuff, hit or miss, my livelihood is taken care of. But what praise does and what excitement does when we think about the Lord's work, it acknowledges that we need him to show up. We need him to actually do something because we ourselves do not have the power in our lives to do that. And so that's why we raise shouts. That's why we proclaim and give praise. That's why we declare because we speak the truth that we know to happen and that we expect to happen. And we honor the Lord and say, Lord, we need you to do this. So we've established now in this framework of how do we get home? It's the Lord's power through our wills of desiring and needing him to bring us home. But then my next question is, what does home look like for Israel? And then what does it look like for us? What are we shooting for? What's our desire in the end? Now, the end of the passage wonderfully gives us an example. It's great how the text answers our questions. So at the end of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, verse 12 to 14, it says, And their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young men rejoice and dance, and the young women and old, young women should rejoice in the dance, and the young man and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. My people shall be satisfied with my goodness. I don't know about you, but I am rarely satisfied. No matter what happens, I always want more. And so to have an understanding of, and my people shall be satisfied. The reasons why is mourning will be turned into joy. God will comfort us and grief will be turned into joy and gladness for sorrow. And so there's this restoration of that which is broken to that which is good, beautiful, and true, that which is right and good. And so that's what the Lord is going to do. And that's why this home is so beautiful, because it paints a picture of life that I can get behind of. Elsewhere in the Bible, in in the book called Revelation, there's another window, the, the, the Lord gives another window into what this looks like. It says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Behold, I am making all things new. I want to read that one more time just because it's so incredible. I will, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, 
nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Behold, I am making all things new. So it's this image of what I've distilled down of home being this place where there's a rightness of life. And by that I mean there is no more tears, there is no more sadness, there is no more death. So that's this home we're shooting for, but what else? I also have identified, I think home is where we're known, we feel loved, and where we belong. So let me say this one more time. It's a rightness of life in where we're known, loved, and belonged. And so as we paint this picture, it's amazing to think of what life will be like in that time. It makes me excited to want to be home. Paul says in in one of his letters, in Philippians 2, 21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I've always heard that, and I said, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. <laughs> what does it mean to, 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 live as, to live as Christ and to die as gain? Why would you want to die? But I understand this need in which it's like, if this is how amazing life after death is, I want to be there. But why does this matter here and now as we talk in this room right now, because it's really great that we have this idea of, I want to be there one day, but I need something more to get me through my, my lifetime. It's easy to think of home as the future that we go to, but when I look at the news, when I see planes crashing in the oceans, when I see people being mugged, when I see Boko Haram doing horrific things in Africa, I say, this is not right. I can't make it through life if it's just this future longing that I'm hoping for. I need something now. I need something now to radically impact my life and change the way that I live my day. And what is really interesting is that we're in this season of Christmas, and that's a powerful sign in which it's all about the incarnation, where God comes down into our world and radically transforms it. He takes on the muddiness. He takes on the pain. He takes on the sadness and dwells and redeems it and dwells in us. And so I want to understand, what does it mean that home is with Jesus? So, so I want to share a story that began to make this more clear to me, of understanding that home is with Jesus. And that's not a really, I don't want to make that a sappy, sentimental thing, where it's like, oh, home is with Jesus. I want to see how that actually and in, in detail plays out. And here's a story that I think shows that. So in New Year's Eve, just a couple days ago, I had a wonderful time. I was in the city in Eastern Market going and experiencing a wonderful New Year's Eve party. And as I walked out after the ball dropped with some friends going back to my car, I walked and then looked at my car, and this is what I saw. So that's my car in the back with a window smashed out, glass on the inside, with this brick in the backside. So someone, having a great old time, decided to walk, pick up a brick, and chuck it through my back window. There was actually, the reason they did this is that there was a purse underneath one of my seats that someone had accidentally left there. And what was ironic is, this girl whose purse was taken was flying home the next day to Tennessee. But she had everything in this purse. And so how could she get on her plane? And so I'm literally looking at my car broken into, and I'm seeing her say over and over again, I can't get home. I can't get home. I'm not going to get home. And it was this profound experience of look at the brokenness of the world robbing someone of their ability to go home. And, And I was just struck by, I was like, this is not right. There has to be something different in this world. I can't live like this. So as I'm thinking on this, and I 
and I reflected back on how I responded in this situation. Now, sometimes I get really anxious and upset, oftentimes based on what occurs around me. But what was fascinating and where I experienced this Jesus' home is that when I saw my car broken into, I wasn't upset for some reason. I was okay. I said, okay, let's call the police. Let me call USAA. Let's work this insurance process, and everything's going to be okay. I felt this weird peace, this calmness, and I was surprised by how I responded because I don't normally do that. And so for me, it gave me this window into what does it mean to be home in which we ourselves have waves crashing around us, coming into our boats, rocking us, bringing us up and down, and we are peaceful and calm. What does it mean to have security inside of ourselves with the Lord that no matter what happens outside, no matter how our identity is questioned, no matter if our cars are broken into, no matter if we don't hear from our kids, what does it look like to be calm and at peace and weather the storm? And and as I begin to think about this, I got this understanding of we are carving out home inside of us as we speak. Home is being carved inside of you right now as you listen. Because what's going on is Jesus is becoming more and more real to you in your mind and in your heart. And so home is an understanding of, yes, it's further on. It's a world called eschatological, the end times, the study of the end. But it's also very practical and present. And we can experience that homeness now. And after tasting, and I don't know if you've tasted that, but I hope and pray that you have where things are crazy around you, but you are calm. And that's what I hope for, and that's what I desire out of this, this talk for you, is to you to walk out of here and say, despite the craziness of my life, the work hours, the, the family dynamics, I can be at peace because Christ is my rock, Christ is my home. And at the end of sermons, which we're coming to, there's oftentimes application. And for me, as I've thought about this, this is kind of hard, because it's like, how do I make Christ in your heart. That's a very weird and hard idea to process. And so what I've thought about is I said, let's go back to the text and see. And so one of the ways that we begin to get the Lord in our heart more is that we acknowledge God. We pause throughout our day, 15 seconds, 20 seconds, and say, Lord, you are God. And in that pause, we're once again acknowledging the pronouns of I and he. We are saying that, Lord, you are the main actor in our life. And again, we praise him. We say, thank you, Lord, for what you've done in my life, how you've been growing me, how you've been operating, and I want more. Lord, I'm eagerly expecting you bringing me home that day, and so begin to do that in my life more and more this day. And I also think another important thing is that we just desire it. We are people who operate out of our loves. So what we love, we tend to do. We have minds, we have rationale, But I don't know about you, but oftentimes, I don't use my mind a lot of times. I use what I feel in my heart. And so I hope that you walk away with this increased passion inside of you of, hey, I want that. I want to go to this place one day. I want Jesus to be my home now so that I can handle any situations. So those are three things we can do. And it's also just walking with Jesus, and it takes time. So be at peace if you're not there right now, because we at times have a three-mile-an-hour God. We oftentimes think God has to go boom, 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 boom. But when I look at the stories of the Bible, things take a long time. And that's okay, and be encouraged that you're not where you want to be, but use that passion to drive into more, of saying, Lord, I want more.
And one of the powerful ways I also think that we use in the liturgy to show us this truth is the Lord's Supper, which we'll be doing. The reason for that is there's past, present, and future implications of what's going on here. So when you are coming down and taking the bread and the wine, I want you to think about the past actions of the Lord dying on the cross, his death and resurrection, thinking of the pronoun of I, of how the Lord himself has worked. As you receive the bread, think of the Lord offering you that right there and praising him, of saying the body and blood of Christ, and we respond, thanks be to God. This is an act of praise. We're acknowledging, Lord, you've done this and we're receiving But then why do we ultimately do this meal as well? It's because it points to the future. In heaven, in that final day, Scripture talks about a banquet, a glorious banquet with everyone sitting around, sharing and dining together. And what we're doing right now is we're saying, this banquet is going to happen, so I'm going to do it right now. I'm going to start the party now. So when we take this bread, we're saying, yes, we're in part having the shadow of what is to come, but there is something to come. And we are eating from this table, proclaiming, what we know will be true. And so again, this acknowledging God, praise, and looking to the future, and all of that culminates in our understanding of home is with Christ, and we're bolstered by Christ. So please pray with me now. Lord, you are good. You are so, so good. I ask that we would understand more of the realities that you have brought us home that you are bringing us home, and that one day all will be made right. I ask that you would begin to build your kingdom inside of us, that no matter what storms rage around us, we can see you walking towards us and saying, do not be afraid, it is I. Dwell with us the rest of this day, Lord, and in this world and in the next. We ask it all in Jesus' powerful and yet tender name. Amen.
Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it, seal it for